Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, I am currently in Stanley, Idaho with a friend of mine. We're chilling outside of the Mountain Village Saloon, drinking a Mikola Ultra, staring at the sunset in the mountains, and the way the sky is just cresting up with the clouds that are rolling in. It's a beautiful afternoon, and I just want to say I appreciate everything that you do. And keep it going. Take it easy. Hola, Chris. This is Gerardo from La Ciudad de México. Et Julie de Montréal. And we're just finishing up a seventh-month road trip around North America in our old Dodge camper van. And we would like to thank you because you've been there every step of the way. Special thanks because a couple of weeks ago we were in the desert of San Luis trying the grandfather Hikuri Peyote and it really changed our world. Uh, thank you for your podcast that opened our minds to have this experience and lots of love and good vibes to all. Adios. Hey there, Chris and fellow tangentialists. It's Zach here coming at you from the west coast of Australia here in Perth. Apparently the most isolated city in the world. Who bloody knows? Uh, yeah, just been packing up and throwing out all my stuff. I just recently got my dual citizenship for Canada. So decided to get a one-way ticket over there get myself a van and travel through Canada and the US and yeah go from there so yeah listening to you really helped inspire me and think about it and really put a plan into action so yeah here you're hitting the road again soon so hopefully our paths will cross right that'd be bloody beautiful but yeah just really wanted to say thank you for being such a clear concise and easily digestible voice on a lot of these unspoken sort of fringe, taboo, whatever you want to call it, subjects. Thanks so much for those messages, guys. Um, yeah, it's always cool to hear people who are out on the road doing what they want to do, doing what they need to do, whatever. Um, just sort of blanket uh, support and encouragement for you to do what feels right for you at any given time, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. Love and do as you please, as St. Augustine said. Uh, I am back from nine-day safari, which has been bizarre, and I'll talk about that uh, at some depth, at some length in an upcoming Roma. Uh, but at the moment, I, I just want to get this episode up and out before we leave the luxurious Sheraton Four Points Hotel in Arusha, Tanzania, use the Wi-Fi while we have it. We're headed to Tbilisi, Georgia in a couple of days. And uh, we're going to be staying in a, a less luxurious spot for the interim. Although this isn't all that luxurious, to be honest. I mean, I would never stay in a Marriott, Sheraton kind of property normally, but uh, we managed to scam a bunch of points. So we're paying for this room with points. Um, not really scam, but a word of advice to anyone out there who has a job in which you spend your company's money 
if you can channel that money through your own credit card and rack up the points, then you can use them later. It's kind of like businessmen who fly a lot uh, will get the frequent flyer miles for themselves because what's the company going to do with them, right? Company doesn't need them. Um, so it's not a scam, really. It's just a, a clever way of doing things. And uh, you can rack up a lot of points and get a lot of free rooms that way. Um, but at this particular place, it's it's crazy. Africa is Africa, man. It's like even at the Sheraton, you don't have hot water half the time. Uh, it's just bizarre the way things are here. It's it's uh, it's fascinating. It's sort of I don't know. I'll, I'm still thinking about it a lot. But there there there's a lot of kind of um, food for thought in the African experience. I'll say that. Anyway, this episode I recorded a couple of weeks ago in Madrid before leaving Spain. Um, with my friend Dario Pescador, who I've known for, man, I don't know, 10 years or so now, because shortly after Sex at Dawn came out, we met. Um, he explains in the uh, conversation about how that happened. He was working for, he's a science journalist, he's a scientist, he's a communicator, he's a fascinating guy, really, really smart dude. And, um, in this conversation, we talk about some of his work experiences and we talk about Spanish history and Spanish culture. And we also uh, get into some quite intimate uh, personal experiences that he's had over the years dealing with, um, you know, some of the challenges that life throws at us. And uh, he got into a pretty dark place and managed to work his way out of it. So um, could be a very helpful episode for those of you who are in places like that or maybe headed for a place like that or maybe on your way out of a place like that or trying to help someone else work uh, through their own darkness and shadows. Um, yeah, he's a courageous guy. And, and as always, I'm very honored when somebody feels safe enough to open up about these sorts of experiences when they know that thousands of people are listening, but uh, they know they're good people. They know that you, the person listening to this, is someone that they can trust. So that's that's a pretty cool thing. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, I really did, and I will be back with you shortly. Um to talk about Africa. And I'm going to be posting a bunch of photos and videos and uh, written stuff uh, about the experience on my Substack page. So those of you who subscribe to that will get email alerts when those go up. All right, I'm going to play you into this conversation with a song I listen to a lot called Mulata. It's by a Cuban musician by the name of Raul Paz, P.A. Z, I guess pass if you say it you know, with a Cuban accent, Raul Pass. Anyway, beautiful song, really nice groove. Check him out. He's a very important Cuban musician if you're not familiar with his work. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Dario Pescador. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, however you do it. Much love to you. Yo solo un pedazo de sueño. Y le han regalado temblores de adentro Por 
el camino canta un bolero y el que pensaba cantarle primero entre paredes de un cuarto viejo perdidos por allá por el centro mordió su corazón y le dijo la vida es un juego es un sueño si la dejan bailar tremendo lío para que mirar Dejan bailar, tremendo lío para que mirar. Lata, 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 Un beso de ella es como una nube que sube, que sube. poca gente que vive, que sueña y que ríe, pero hay que encontrarla. Le compró la luna y el miedo, perdidos por allá por el centro. Y con su risa grito en silencio, la vida es un juego, es un juego. Si la dejan bailar, tremendo lío para que mirar. So we are in, uh, let's set the stage here. We're in Madrid. We're in an apartment. Madrid's a big city because we were in a taxi like 20 minutes coming here. Yeah, it's a big city. The center of Madrid to here. And this is still very much in Madrid, obviously. 
It is, yeah. Madrid proper is like three three point five million people. So yeah, yeah. Um, and this apartment, it's your buddy's apartment, and it's full of antiques. And uh, I I noticed earlier a, a photograph of, I guess the woman who used to live here is my my buddy's m- mom. He's your buddy's mom. My late buddy's, buddy's mom. mom yeah, uh, shaking the hand of the king. Yeah, the former king. The former king who's still alive. Still so alive, but emeritus he, king. He just gave up his, his kingship. Yeah, he did. Because what, what happened? He was shooting elephants or something? Oh, or much worse than that. Yeah, yeah, there was corruption and he was withholding money from the government and, right. and like Swiss accounts. That, like and Saudi all the money Arabia that he got from money. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. He was yeah. in cahoots with the government of Saudi Arabia for a long time. All of those things came out a few years ago. And, well, a lot of the, of the crimes committed just um, are no longer they can no longer go into trial because, because of a lot of time passed too much time yeah right yeah it, it's it's a shame that was a real shame when that happened because I, I'm certainly no expert in, in Spanish history or the monarchy or any of that but my impression was that he was quite well respected by the people of Spain because of his actions what happened? There was a coup attempt shortly after Franco died. Yeah. Well, Franco died in his bed in 75, 1975. So the real transition from a dictatorship to democracy was just before because the dictator died right. peacefully. Right. So in a, in a transition like that, uh, where all the countries surrounding Spain were already modern democracies, there was no room for a successor to the dictator. Mm. Although the dictator had appointed the king as his successor. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And, well, the transition process was that the king said, no, we are going to be a modern parliamentary democracy, and this is how it's going to go. Right. And, well, the <laughs> the big deal at the time was that the Communist Party was legalized. And sure enough, a lot of people, right-wing former elites, freaked out. And in 81, six years before, six years after the transition, the, um, the army staged a coup. Right. And... Everything is pretty much in the dark. We don't really know what happened, but we came out of it as the king said, no, uh, I'm not behind this, and I'm supporting democracy. He went on television. And exactly, and disavowing the, the coup. Right. right, which, I mean, that's very interesting. First of all, I didn't know that he was appointed by the king, so he could have... By, the, by Franco. But I the, mean, by Franco, take, yeah. yeah. He, he could have taken total control of the country. And yeah, he could. Who knows? Although... Spain was part of NATO as well, right? Not yet. Oh, they weren't in that No, point? no, oh. no. They happened years after that. I thought there were already like NATO military bases in Spain Not while yet. Franco was in power. Actually, uh, I don't remember the year exactly. It must have been 82, 83. I, I was a teenager. I was in high school. Right. And there was a referendum to decide whether we wanted to be in NATO or oh, not. okay. And funny enough, the socialist 
party was in government. And they supported that Spain entered NATO. Well, so, Gonzalez? Yeah, Gonzalez. Yeah. And Suarez? Suarez was a um, right center kind of guy. Huh. Um, he was a former official with Franco, but he he was younger at the time and he right. had ideas. And he was a, he formed the first democratic government right. in Spain. Right. Yeah, I had a girlfriend named Suarez. That's why I remember. Yeah. Not that I was that tuned into Spanish politics <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, there's so much about Spain that fascinates me. And, you know, obviously having lived here so long, I have some sense of things, but very, um, you know, sort of seen from outside. There are mysteries about Spain that I think are interesting because how to say this i th i feel like in spain there is in spanish culture in general and correct me feel free to correct me on everything i say today oh, please. Uh, go ahead as it's really interesting for me to see what other people's impressions of my country right. are yeah. also yeah. because i've always felt like an outsider in my own country ah so, so. <laughs> so you can relate yeah when you're you're multicultural you're you know a very global kind of guy so i'm sure your perspective includes all these different things. But I feel like Spanish culture has a um, a tolerance for just letting something go and not looking into it too much further. Like, for example, with adultery. You know, like, I feel like France sort of incorporates adultery almost explicitly in a way. Like, it's expected. And, you know, when Mitterrand died, his mistress was at the funeral standing next to his yes. wife. And the whole country's like, yeah, of course, he had mistresses. Like, we know that. Whereas in Spain, it's like, okay, everyone knows the king had mistresses, but she doesn't show up at public functions or they don't show up. Or I, I guess what I'm saying is I think there are things in Spanish culture that including the civil war in in many respects that spain is just like we're not going to open that closet we're just going to leave that door closed we're not going to talk about it um and i mean there was a big olive oil thing do you remember that all these people died yeah um, it was an olive oil it was canola oil canola oil that was yeah. being sold it, it was um um it wasn't poisoned. It was for industrial use. Right. Uh, and it was somehow um, put into the distribution channel for edible oil. Right. But it already had some chemicals that are used to mark the oil as industrial use. And those chemicals were causing poisoning. Right. So there was a huge scandal. Because at the beginning, people didn't know what the disease was, and doctors took a lot, really long time to establish a link between the oil and the people who were dying. And, and there was a big cover-up, and the doctor who first started talking about it yes. died mysteriously. And I remember all this stuff going on, and it was, and then it just sort of, oh, it disappeared. Or, or maybe ten years ago, this big building in Madrid 
caught on fire. Yes, Remember? that was also kind of shady. Very yeah. shady, and there were like image. There were videos of people walking around inside the building while it start when it started burning. Yeah, but then nobody died. And and what was in the building? There were like some important there documents. Were some that, important documents that apparently some people were removing from the building. Yeah, and but you know I think it can be traced back to Spanish history, which is a very uncommon one because. Let's not forget that Spain... I'm not a historian, so I'm just... Um, we're both talking out our asses here. We're talking out our asses, Is that exactly. an expression in Spanish? Do you, do you say... That? <laughs> it sounds like idiomatic. <laughs> I know you say exactly. cago en eso, cago Not exactly, no. But the, yeah, there are expressions to that effect. So what, yeah. what would you say in Spain when you're saying, okay, I'm talking, but I have no fucking idea what I'm talking about? What would, what would the, the You actually say that. You say, uh, no tengo ni idea, pero... Oh, okay. You would say, estoy hablando por el culo or something like that. Yeah, well, you don't actually say that 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 would be weird so please don't use that in spanish chris but <laughs> no the the thing i was about to say is that um you have to take into account that in the 16th century spanish spain was a global empire yeah we had all the colonies in america we had colonies in, in africa and asia the philippines was um, part of spain there was a saying that the sun never set on the spanish Empire, mm. and they screw the whole thing up. They basically started from that moment on to lose all the colonies, to lose control of the trade routes, to lose control of all the imports and riches that came from America. Because the the Spanish government was very rigid, very religious, and very authoritarian. Yeah. There was a lot of um, noblemen and people next to the king that were taking advantage of it. Right. So I spoke recently to Oda Galor, this economist from Brown, who has been um, is being talked as maybe the next noble in economics. And he mentions the fact that where other European countries like Holland or England were better at redistributing wealth that came from the colonies and that made society grow as a whole, Spanish kings were basically using for their personal benefit and to wage wars against other yeah. people that they considered to be um, right. heretics, like Protestants. So all, those, uh, all that wealth coming from the empire was, in effect, wasted. Yeah. A lot of it was put into ships that were sunk. Yeah. And this is the funny thing. At the same time, Spanish army had developed a, a technology that was fencing. Fencing is supposed to have, is sometimes thought as being originated in France, modern fencing, but it actually was a um, development of the Spanish imperial troops. And they became almost invincible. They would fence using a long sword and a shorter dagger. And their te technique was, at the time, really advanced. Hmm. So other armies didn't stand a chance. Really? Just yeah. because of sword, the, their sword? The, the their yeah. swordship, yeah. Interesting. So that, I believe, and other historians and scholars think also that um, made Spaniards excessively arrogant 
Mm. So one of the uh, the worst scents, every country has its own scent. And Hubert's is probably the the worst scent that Spaniards have ever since that day. So we ended up, the, we, the country ended up losing all its colonies, but people still felt that they belonged to the best country in the world. Right. And I think you can also relate to that as an American. <laughs> yeah. Well, doesn't every country think they're the best in the world in some way? I mean, uh, the French certainly do. The British do. The Germans do. Former the, empires. Former empires. Yeah. yeah. Other countries have, know they've always been the underdog. They don't think they're the best. And they, I think they have much healthier societies. Don't Argentinians think they're the best? Fucking, I've never met anyone as arrogant as Argentinians. <laughs> <laughs> they also have the highest ratio of psychologists per capita of any They do, in the world. they do, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember having this discussion with an Argentinian dude once, and we were talking about New York City, and he was telling me all about New York, and, and he said something that wasn't true, and I was like, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. And he he was like, no, no, you don't. And he actually like put his hand on my chest to like make me stop talking, you know, like he did. And it's like, uh, yeah, but I lived there for six years. And he said, I said, have you ever been to New York? He said, no, but, but and he just and I was like, wow, you are so Argentinian. You're going to tell me about a place you've never been. Well, I have really good Argentinian friends. I do, too. I love them. But yeah, I, we're, I love we're them. generalizing. Yeah, we're, we're generalizing. But every yeah. empire ends, right? So, I mean, but Portugal's you, you even more bitter. You also have to bitter. bring into account, the, take, take into account that uh, a century ago, a little, little more than a century ago, immigrants were from Europe were making a tough decision. Do I go to the United States or do I go to Argentina? Because both countries offered the same opportunities. They were both um, equally wealthy. Mm, right. And people have to make that decision. So a lot of Europeans went to Argentina. There are huge yeah. colonies from and huge um, sectors of the population that are descendants from Germans, from Italians, from Spaniards. Yeah. Uh, from Polish. So they really had the idea that this country, they, they say, un país hecho de pan, this country is made of bread. Because mm. it's so rich and because easy it's to grow so things. Exactly, and, yeah. everything grows. Yeah. Every, there's a uh, booming trade. Right. We have the best ports. We have really nice weather. The country is so big, you can do anything. And yet, yeah, funny enough, well, we all know how the story ended. Yeah. Political corruption. Yeah, and I interference. Yeah. I mean, the military coup in the 70s in Argentina was uh, supported by the CIA, right. as, you, as you very well know. Yeah. Too. yeah, it's hard to think of a military coup that wasn't supported by the CIA. Yeah, either that or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the Soviets back in the 70s. So you are... Uh, a sci what do you call yourself? A, a scientific journalist? A yeah, science journalist or sci science communicator. Yeah, and but before you got into the communication part, you were a scientist. You're, that's your entry to this. That, I was trained as an engineer and uh, a physicist, but right. I never really actually worked as one. So very early on, I was thinking I enjoyed telling people about how things were more than I would 
enjoy making the things work right, right. <laughs> in the actual terms and I think that all comes from my early childhood because I was in school and some of the teachers were good, some were not so good. We all have those experiences. And yeah. when I finally understood what the teacher wanted to say, something clicked in my mind and I thought, why didn't you tell it this other way, which is much easier to understand? Mm, right. So very early on, I wanted to, and then I would have this epiphany, this um, this rush of, of intellectual pleasures. Oh, mm. we'll finally get it. Right. Despite this, teachers is not who can't really explain things properly. I got it, and this is making me feel really good. Mm. So I wanted to share that feeling with other people. Yeah. And, and did you get that feeling primarily from the hard sciences, or did you also feel that with biology or literature? Oh, and history and literature, everything. everything. Right. Whenever I had this moment of understanding, that was the, the primary mover for, for me. Yeah. And that, um, well, I have to say that I see myself back when I was a child, and maybe I, I was displaying certain symptoms of being in this autistic spectrum, mild, functional, but they were kind of there. And as a teenager, I was very awkward, socially awkward, mm. and I didn't really have um, a lot of girlfriends at the time. And I only felt comfortable thinking, uh, talking about the stuff that I had studied, the stuff that I had discovered. So mm. um, when I didn't dare approach a girl, but when I was approached by a girl, I would start telling her about the origin of the universe, about <laughs> black holes, about DNA, about how cells biology sure. work. Uh, that didn't work very well. <laughs> love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, that didn't yeah. pan out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That's such a strange thing. I, I can. I, I don't know if you ever had a teacher or an adult in your life who told you this, but I, I can remember a couple of adults in my life telling me like because they could see I was in the same spot you were in right where it's like I just don't know how I really want to connect with these girls but there's just no it's like a moat you know like trying to storm a castle or something there's just no way and I, I can remember adults saying to me like just hold on the things that make you seem like a weirdo now are going to be really valuable in 10 years you know or 20 or 30. <laughs> I think they probably... Like, yeah, I always had to wait a long time. I wish somebody had told me that. Yeah. Had, it would have saved me a lot of heartache and, and thinking that I was doing everything wrong. Right. I know that there was something wrong with me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like so much of life is trying to overcome wounds that were received, you know, either in childhood from family or parents or whatever. or Yeah, shortcomings. But they, I mean, they're not really shortcomings, right? They're just, they're just, you haven't grown into yeah. yourself yet, or you haven't grown into the world. You know, like a good friend of mine thought she was stupid in high school hmm. because nobody liked her and, and it, she didn't find anything interesting. And it was all like she couldn't do school. And then she got to university and she went to a good university that fit her. And suddenly she was a genius. She was brilliant. All the professors were saying, oh, my God, you should be a teacher. You should go to graduate school. And it, she didn't change. She just moved into a different realm 
where her qualities were recognized. I feel like so many people blame themselves when really they're just not in a realm where their qualities are recognized, you know? I I absolutely agree. I think context is so important. Yeah. Um, circling back to what we were saying about Spain, um, a lot of people think that Spaniards are not as efficient or proficient as Germans say. Right. I know a lot of Spanish scientists that can't work in Spain because of budgets or opportunities. They go to the States, they go to Switzerland, and they are the best in their field. Yeah. So when you put someone in a different context, that person becomes a, um, the best they can be in that yeah. context. Right. And I think the same is uh, valid for every one of us in every other aspect of our lives. Did you grow up in Spain? I did, yes. Yeah, so when you're talking about these educational experiences, you're talking about the Spanish education system. Yeah, and I always felt like I was a misfit because I was expecting from the system some kind of um, path towards learning the things that I wanted, Right. and it wasn't there. Right. So I went to engineering school, and I want I really wanted to... Um, learn about mechanics and electromagnetism and I really wanted to learn how to do stuff and instead there was this long winded curriculum that he had to that, that was like an obstacle course yeah. let's do this really weird integral mathematical problems that there were all exceptions I mean you were taught the, the rules in class and there was always an exception the day of the test so <laughs> It wasn't designed to make people learn. It wasn't. It was designed to weed people out. Right, as and so often happens. In yeah, and it became very frustrating for yeah. me. Uh, anyway, I ended up going through that grinder, but I was. Uh, I had other interests. Yeah, and I also wanted to connect with people in some way. So you graduated. From what university? Yeah, the uh, like Polytechnic University. Like your four-year kind of degree in engineering. Yeah, and and you're thinking what? Like I'm I'm going to get a job as an engineer, or had you already realized? The you thing is that I it? was I was doing another um, another study in physics, and at the time, if some friends of mine from the engineering school started um, a company. And they said, why don't you come work with us? And that, and same thing happened to me. I didn't go all in into their company. I said, guys, I want to work part-time with you because I have, I have other things that I want to do. Mm. So after working for that company, another friend of mine told me, um, listen, there's this uh, cable channel. At the time it was in cable in Spain. It was satellite um, channel, but they were like themed channels. Right. So they're starting this cable channel about um, internet and technology and they're looking for people who can write scripts and and be hosts. And I said, well, I don't know about hosting a, pro uh, a TV program, but I can certainly write about stuff. I was already writing for magazines. Why not host? You'd be a great host. And I went in and first thing they told me, yeah, come to the set sit in front of the camera and okay. talk to us. <laughs> good, good. So somebody else thought that too. Right. Yeah. Uh, long story short, I was a host of a TV program for two years. All right, good. And how did Dealing. that feel? What was that like? It was a great um, 
opportunity for me to learn. What was the name of the show? The funny thing, the, the name of the show was Control C because at the time people still used keyboard shortcuts. Um, so Control C was the Control keyboard C. shortcut for copy. For copy. Right. And I it still also use involved- keyboard shortcuts. Is that passe? I think so. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're the, else doing? the only old geezers like us. Do really? It oh, geez, I didn't even know that was an old guy thing. Yeah. Control. It's like the emoticons with um, punctuation signs, like colon. Right, right. Well, I don't even do those. No emoticons. Yeah. Fuck emoticons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's a ship I'm not going to get on. Yeah, it tells the whole thing away. I, I mean, I think typing, I, I, I think typing is one of those things that, has a very brief historical window. I, I think kids growing up now, they'll never learn to type. Because voice... They do type on phones. Well, thumb typing or whatever. Yeah, but typing. I mean, voice recognition is so good now. Voice to text, right? Why would you type anything? If everything, you can just talk to it and it's it'll just, uh, you know, render it in text immediately without any intervention. It's why bother learning? Yeah, I don't know about kids... These days, I know about how my brain works, and I'm used to typing, and I was not so used to recording. Mm. And the thing is that I write different stuff if I'm typing, and it sounds really different if I'm recording it. So I ended up um, having this moment of realization that, oh, okay, I need to type the stuff and is going to go into an article and be published online. Sure. But if I'm recording a script for a video, yeah. I'm going to record it. Yeah. Because huh. that way it's, um, I don't have to edit it afterwards. Right. It just comes out as a, a normal speech. Yeah, it's interesting how the technology we're using changes the the sort of the nature of the communication, right? Like Ernest Hemingway famously always wrote standing up. So even our bodily posture probably has some. He would write on top of a refrigerator, always on yellow legal pads. Uh, And a lot of famous writers write in longhand. And then they'll take that, edit that, work it down, and then they'll sit down and type it. Um, and that sort of brings it into a different sort of, you know, like a tadpole to a frog or something, uh, a metamorphosis. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm thinking about writing a book uh, and I would love to be able to just speak it. But I don't think you can do that. It I don't think you can mess. do that. Yeah. Because then it's somebody reads your words from paper or Kindle or wherever they use. Your words are going to sound like a transcript from script right? Yeah. instead of a book. Yeah. It's a different tempo. It's a different structure. Yeah. So one of my friends is a, a really good writer. He, he's won on, uh, several awards for short novels and short stories. And I, he was giving this course about creative writing, and I enrolled in one of them and just because he was my friend. He's great. But that was the first time that I had been forced to write fiction because I had never wrote fiction before. Right. And I had to change my setup. I usually write, probably you can relate to this, with like 
20 tabs on my browse, internet browser opened for data and right. confirmation and examples of what I'm trying to explain. Yeah. But this thing that I was writing, short story, was coming out of my head. So I had to use a different computer program. Right, to so, cut off. To cut off all the right? stuff. Yeah. And to realize that, oh, uh, this is a blank page, literally. And how, so, how did that feel? Was that liberating or intimidating or what? I thought it was going to be intimidating, and it really wasn't. It was very liberating because mm. I wasn't looking for um, for data. I was looking into my own head. Right. Of course, you always say, oh, what was the capital of Finland? And then you look it right. up. <laughs> but then you go back to writing because yeah. uh, the action comes from your experiences and your personal stories as well. Yeah, I, I'm sort of flirting with the idea of writing a fictional book. I heard. Oh, do we talk yeah, about that? Yeah, we can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm generating interest. I got seven people interested. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, well, there's, I don't know if you're, you're referring to the memoir thing or I've got a few ideas I, I talk about sometime, but one of them is is a novel and it's it's really intriguing because of that, because I would like writing to be, to at least experience writing as the process of cutting off all that chatter and needing, needing to prove things and find the, the reference and the, you know, the supporting data and all that kind of stuff and not making an argument, right? Just telling a story. That sounds liberating, but of course I realize that once I start doing it, it might it might not be as liberating as it sounds. I don't know. Why not? I mean, it may get out of hand, but that's all the best. Yeah. That's for the best. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I like the idea of being in a trance state. You know, like sometimes yeah. when I'm doing a podcast by myself, I I sort of enter into a mild trance state. And it's so relaxing and so annoying when a dog starts barking or the leaf blower goes and you know, pulls me out of it. But I imagine that writing that way could be, if you're writing fiction, could be like entering into a trance state because you're not constantly coming to the surface to find, you know, to integrate that data point. You're just going with the story. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Getting outside of ourselves. Flow. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, leaving our ego behind. A lot of people think that ego is this evil thing inside us making us do things that... Um, harm us and no it's just this part of our of us that we don't need really to identify it with but if we can leave it behind and open up our f field of vision we can accomplish other things yeah that's so a realization that came to me later in life because i was always on always focused on, on doing stuff. Well, that, that's what I wanted to ask you because you seem like, I mean, I don't know you super well, but we've known each other for quite a while. Um, and you seem to me like a very aware, emotionally evolved, sensitive guy. Um, but of course, you also have this kind of nerdy engineer, data-driven accuracy uh, perspective, you know, mm -hmm. which you would get from, from that kind of education and all that. Do you ever find it difficult to integrate those different aspects of yourself? Or is that something that's come naturally as you've gone through life? Oh, man, all the time. 
I mean, talk about um, deficits and and stuff that we learn later in life. For the longest time, I was very, very rational, very, like you said, um, data-driven person. And the the sad story is that oh, I also applied that mindset to my personal relationships. Right. So whenever I had um, an issue with my partner or with other people that I was uh, emotionally involved with, I would say, "Okay, let's sit down and take this thing apart." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you feel yeah. A, and that prompts you to do B, but maybe you could do C instead. So why are you not doing it? Uh, that went really wrong, and <laughs> most of the yeah. most of the time because they were in actuality using a different part of the brains. And I learned about that slowly and painfully over the the past um, decade and a half. Right. And I had to reconsider really my whole worldview, my home my whole um, frame of reference to be able to deal with human feelings. Right. Which are irrational to it's a, large a different extent. language. Yeah. I love languages, and that was a language that I didn't speak. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting path. So, just to sort of before we move too far into the this other stuff, just to fill in the the biographical thing, you taught you were uh, hosting the show for a couple of years, Control yes. C, um, and then did you get tired of that, or the show ran its course, or what happened there? You know, all my life I was I was. Wanting to leave the country and live in a different place, mm. and during that period of my life, what happened was that every couple of years I was offered a better opportunity, a better job, a more interesting project that I that I was um, involved with, or I got into a romantic relationship that made me stay. So I was oh okay when I was done with the with the show I was thinking well maybe now I can go work in Germany or do some other stuff and a friend of mine whom you met um, my friend Pepe the anthropologist who became also a science communicator mm. we we had dinner together ten years ago when mm. we, we were in Madrid he was one of the um, guests at one of the shows at the at the channel at the station I was working for and he said look um, I was approached by some investors so we're starting this internet company do you want to work with me uh, and I said yes without even <laughs> looking into it because right. he was such a great guy that I really wanted to work yeah. with him so I got into the whole internet craze and that was like an internet magazine it was an online magazine that was also a research and uh, internet consulting thing. Right. But I was in charge of content. And that's when you interviewed me about Sex at Dawn? That's how we met? No, that was 10 years later, oh. actually. Oh, okay. I'm talking about 2000. Right. Wow. The, okay. the so first doing that. internet boom. Right. The thing is that the internet boom started in Spain later than it did in the States, but when everything crashed, it crashed at the same time. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. come 2001, I was out of the job and I started doing other stuff. So I started consulting for e-learning companies. I mm. uh, started doing um, science communication for, for magazines and, and doing all the things. Right. Wow. Okay. So you went from the so the TV show was like late nineties. 
late 90s and yes then you do that and then that i guess crashed pretty quickly right in a couple of years couple yeah of years, but yeah. it was a, an an amazing experience yeah and so that gave you your experience both as a telecommunications and written communications and science yeah online businesses right. and um also editing because I was the editor in chief. So right, and it, where when we met, two thousand ten, eleven, somewhere 10, around there. Yeah. How did that? I forget how that happened. Well, it's did um, you interview me, or you wrote an article about sex at dawn, or how did? What at the time, I was uh, working for other companies, doing other stuff, um, mostly consulting, but I was. A contributor to a science magazine called Quo Quo. Right, right. And that was kind of my outlet for my writing uh-huh. because they paid really well. They were nice and edgy. They were always looking for the latest thing. Mm-hmm. And well, at the time, I had been in an open relationship for more than ten years. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to this podcast called Paul Yamory Weekly. And the host interviewed you uh-huh. about your book, uh, Cunning Minx. Cunning Minx. <laughs> I remember that interview. We were sitting in her car yeah. in Seattle, and it was raining because we were supposed to do. We were supposed to record somewhere, and like there were people around. There's all this noise, and we couldn't do it. And we ended up sitting in her car. Yeah, you told in the that. Street. Do we talk about that? You were talking yeah, that's about funny. that. I remember that. Yeah, that's funny. so. I was at the gym, uh, and I was listening to that podcast. Uh, I got a hold of your book. I read it, and I went to the editor-in-chief of the magazine and said, hey, uh, this guy has published this amazing book. I'd like to interview him. And I also learned that you were living in Spain at the time, so it was really easy. Mm -hmm. I I pitched them the the interview, they published it, and the rest is history. (laughs) Well, I'll always be eternally grateful to you because one thing I remember about that is you said to me, like, how come this book isn't being published in Spain? I said, I don't know. Never heard from a Spanish publisher. And you said, oh, let me work on that. Can I can I talk to some people on your behalf? I said, sure. And yeah, uh, it it happened pretty quickly after that. I guess Pygos, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you got published in Spain. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, Civilized to Death is published in Spain as well. It is, yeah. Capitan Swing or something like that. I think is the name of the publisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I recommended it to a lot of my friends, so a lot of people had read it in Spanish. Oh, cool, <laughs> cool. And I guess the translation's well done. I think... I'm, I can't tell. I, don't, I didn't read it. Yeah, well, you'd read it in English if, if you read it. Your English is so good. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. For, yeah, you know, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. Um, so you, you mentioned you were in an open relationship. How does a guy who's having trouble with the language of your rational relationship negotiation handle an open relationship for 10 years? That's a good question. Um, well, I was never monogamous before that. Ah. Before that, I was in a um, in a long-distance relationship, and we had the tacit agreement that, well, well we were in different countries. We right. could do whatever we wanted. I mean, All she right. was in Germany. I was in Spain. Long story. But... Um, I think that it was a learning process for me. In a way, I was 
um, being in in long distance relationships because it felt more manageable. Right. And at the same time, I didn't feel compelled to start a traditional monogamous relationship and go into the relationship elevator and get married, um, have kids and the whole thing. So I was also open to exploring. I think I told you the story. The thing is that I was so nerdy and I had so little experience with uh, relationships with girls when I was in my early 20s that I had for many years figured out the what I thought was a better framework for relationships. So I, I was looking around and saying, well, this monogamous thing doesn't seem to work very well. <laughs> and... I was thinking, well, if you are um, an emotionally intelligent person, if you're aware of what you want, what your needs are, it could very well be that you're in a relationship with multiple people. And it didn't seem weird to me. Right. In theory, it'll fit perfectly because I hadn't put it into practice. <laughs> right. In theory. Uh, yeah. So that yeah. started years later. Right. I was lucky enough to um, to be with this person for 14 years, whom you met, my, my ex. Mm. And we went through the whole process of um, building an open relationship and, and learning from each other. And um, yeah, this is how we went about it. It was a process and it was um, an education in some yeah. ways. And I think that I I was really lucky because most people don't have that opportunity. To work it out with a partner who's open to conversation. And and to have those experiences. Right. How do you deal with jealousy? Most people don't. Yeah. They just have an argument and they fuck off and they don't see each other again. So dealing with jealousy, dealing with time management, dealing with um, your own emotions when you feel left behind or you feel that you need something that you're not getting those are things that you are forced to do when you have an open relationship right if you don't well you look at mainstream culture and movies and books and they tell you oh well either he does that or he doesn't love you right do you think you are forced to do those things or do you think that's just the way you and your partner at the time chose to deal with them? I, I mean, I the reason I'm pushing back at that a little bit is that I think a lot of people use so-called open relationships as a way to avoid intimacy. You didn't. You obviously were using it as a path toward intimacy and and intimacy with yourself and your own hangups and your own weaknesses and with her um, challenges and so on. But I feel like, you know, being the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn, sometimes I feel responsible to say, you know, I I do see people who use non-monogamy as a way of avoiding their own demons. A lot of people do. Yeah. And they also use cheating. They use monogamy as a way. And they use monogamy. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is you can fuck up any relationship model. Of course. 
Of course, yeah. one of my partners once said, I didn't get into non-monogamy because I didn't want any problems. I just wanted a different set of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I do think, I think you're certainly right that it presents the opportunity to challenge things like, or to think through things like jealousy and insecurity and time management and all that. Yeah, I think it, it brings... Um, a lot of opportunities for learning emotional self-regulation. Right. Right. So you think, is there an overlap in your experience? Because you've been in that world longer than I have, uh, it sounds like. Um, Because you'd already been in a relationship for 10 years when Sex at Dawn came out. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think there's an overlap between people in that world and people who have some sort of um, somewhere on the uh, autism spectrum or you know what I mean? Because I found when, I, when I've gone around giving talks, like when Sex of Dawn came out and I gave a lot of public talks, I noticed that the communities where the biggest crowds came out were also places where there was a lot of high tech a lot of a lot of people who are hacking right like yeah. they're hacking economics they're hacking how to work that you know they're looking for better ways of doing things and cutting out inefficiencies and re rethinking it reconfiguring you know what's what's the the line at facebook like move fast and break things or something like that like they're yeah, those the sorts of people yeah. do you find that in spain as well or is that just absolutely i found it every all, all oh, around okay. the world i oh, mean there's a clear overlap in terms of human groups that are in willing to to get into this um funny enough uh back in the day i had this circle of friends who were um, non-monogamous but they were also into science or engineering and they were also into BDSM and they were also into uh, they were members of the International Skeptical Circle right. there is this organization fighting pseudoscience right. and they were also um, attending um, science and technology talks so we all met in different circles that were overlapping Mm. People who were role playing, people who uh, live role playing, it. and we had this running joke. We said um, Madrid has a population of three hundred people <laughs> you because it's, it's three million, but you right. only relate to that one percent of the people that you see everywhere, yeah, and that come together in different scenarios and they interact together, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. Uh, to your question, I think there's a huge overlap. And there's also a lot of research about what autism really is. Because, yeah, it can be disabling, it can be a really serious disorder, but um, in other milder forms, it's just a different way of looking at the world. Yeah. Have you read Neurotribes? I heard about that. I've heard about it, yeah, but I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it either. I, I had the author, Steve Silberman, on the podcast. I I met him. He's an awesome guy. Really interesting. And we ended up not even really talking about autism. Um, It was one of those podcasts where we just went off on, I think we talked about music for an hour, an hour and a half, (laughs) because he's super into music as well. Um, 
you know, and I hadn't read the book, so <laughs> I wasn't really <laughs> Old shame of you. <laughs> yeah, and I don't like to pretend I've read it, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I feel so disingenuous when I do that. And I can always tell when when uh, someone's interviewing me and they haven't actually read the book and they're pretending they did, and it's like, okay, we're going to do this dance. <laughs> it's not necessary. Um, yeah, so, so you're... Uh, at this point, you uh, like what were you telling me earlier? You started a business, and the the crash sort of. Oh well, took the that was because of, that. of COVID. Uh, the COVID. But crash. I had this um, downfall that started when my relationship that it wasn't it was ten years when I met you, but it lasted for fourteen years. That was the woman in Germany. Yeah, no, that was the woman you met. In oh, oh, Vancouver. Okay. Oh, right, right. And she left me overnight and at the time i was dating this um this woman from the states who was living in madrid at the time and the first thing i told her was hey um run away from me because uh, i know we we just started our relationship but i had this huge thing befalling me my partner of 14 years just left me overnight so i'm not going to be in a good place and I understand if you just go your own way. And she said, no, I'm, I'm going to stay. I, I think that our relationship's worth it. So we were in a relationship for another three years. And then the same thing happened. She left overnight. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was, I was devastated beyond belief. And I went into this long uh, clinical depression. Was it for the first time in your life? Yeah. It was something that I felt like it had been brewing for some time Mm. because I I was never really comfortable in the world. I was Mm. not comfortable in my own skin. And everything um, came to the surface at that moment. What am I doing? In terms of my... Not my professional life that was more or less figured out despite the crisis and and everything, but my emotional life. What what am I doing? Why is this so devastating to me? Why can't I sleep? And I was going through it and I started researching the hell out of it because that's how I tick. I started researching every single uh, paper on depression, every single experiment they were doing. And... Um, in the process, I was, um, well, uh, I was losing control of other parts of my life mm. also. And it was a long-winded road. And I think that I needed that personal catastrophe to happen in order to keep on living the life that I always wanted for myself that without that shock that trauma i wouldn't have been able to discover the things that i discovered later how old were you when that um it was 10 years ago so i was uh 42 right and so you felt in retrospect do you look at it I mean, you said that you needed that in order to move to the next phase. Do you look at that as like the end of a road you were on and you needed to take a different path? Or 
are you on the same path and that was just a a pause or what changed for you between before and after that well what i i guess i told you the thing is that i almost died because i had no further reason to live i had some parts of my life that were more or less okay but i i found out that emotionally all that road of discovery was predicated on being with someone who supported me Mm. but it didn't have that support from myself i see and that was something that i hadn't withdrew the support you were left exactly i was left with nothing Mm. so that was something that i needed to learn the the hard way and i wasn't alone and that was also a great part of it i had the support of a lot of people around me friends lovers who were uh, rightfully concerned and in that process all those friends remained at a safe distance for for them yeah and that was also really uh, great because otherwise i would have attached myself to one of them <laughs> mm. well that's interesting how did they know to do that I don't think they knew. They were just doing it. Right. And that's something that I admire of people whose brains work in a different way, that they know those things because I wouldn't know. Right. I would have to analyze the everything, all the different factors that come into it to, to get to that conclusion. Oh, maybe I should keep my distance. And they knew. Right. Instinctively. Right. Instinctively. Right. Yeah, I, I often think of um, an experience I had when I was learning to be a lifeguard when I was in high school. And uh, you may have even heard me talk about this on the podcast. I'm sure I've talked about it before. But I was struck um, when the teacher said, you can't get too close to the person you're trying to save because they'll drown you. Exactly. So you need to either, if you're going to talk them in, you get like two meters away so they can hear you, but don't let them grab you. You stay, you know, or you swim under, grab their ankles and come up their body and turn them around and take control. You protect yourself. You have to protect yourself because a desperate person will pull you under uh, or try to climb on top of you, you know. So, yeah, it's interesting when you say they kept a, a distance, but they were close enough that you didn't feel alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a delicate and Maneuver. yeah, during that time, I also discovered that the um, that healthcare regarding psychological issues it's in its infancy. Yeah, and I think in Spain it's even worse. It there doesn't seem to be a lot of effective therapy in Spain. It's more medicalized. It's not really not more than other countries. The thing is that. Um, there's been a stigma for many years that you don't go to see a shrink. Right. Unless you're crazy. Unless you're crazy. Yeah. Or if you do, then you are crazy. Right. Things are changing very quickly, fortunately, and a lot of people are seeking help. Yeah. But uh, still, when psychologists don't, can't seem to manage your condition, they refer you to the psychiatrist who's going to dope you up. Right. It's going to give you the antidepressants or the um, anxiety pills or whatever right, it is. Right. And did you go through that? I went through that and the pills didn't work. Mm. 
and therapy wasn't working. Um, I wasn't the right kind of therapy. I fired a lot of therapists. And a friend of mine was a professor of psychology in, at the University of Madrid. And I, I talked to him and I told him, hey, this is going to sound really presumptuous and this is going to sound bad, but I need you to refer me to a therapist who's smarter than me. Hmm. And he did, no, it doesn't sound presumptuous. This is very common. Right. Which makes it very hard for yeah. somebody like you. Yeah. And, and he did. But most therapists are going through this general purpose set of techniques that they use, like um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was smart enough to go through all the moves, the, all the motions, and give them the results that they wanted to see. But I was also honest about it. Listen, I did all the reframing. I went through all my memories. I went through all my emotions. This is how I feel. This is how I should feel. This is how I, I would change it. I still feel like crap. Mm -hmm. So is there anything I can do? And, and no, just keep on going. Mm. this will end sometime in the future it's a process and it wasn't really working for me so what happened what happened is that I came across um, all the papers and experiments that were um, being con conducted with psychedelic drugs right I read the MAP study on MDMA I read the um, Royal College in London uh, that did a study in psilocybin and I decided that, well, this is working for a lot of people, so maybe it works for me. The first thing that I did was um, follow the protocol on MDMA to the letter because at the time I just wanted to top myself off and I thought, well, I got nothing to lose. You wanted to knock yourself off. No, I wanted to kill myself, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and I thought I got nothing to lose. What I did was I followed the protocol, got hold of the MDMA, and used it to go through all my memories of all the of the the last two relationships that I was into methodically and um, thoroughly and expose myself to all those pictures, all those emails, all those conversations that we had had. I see. So you, you use the MDMA and the protocol you were looking at was the PTSD exactly. protocol. The PTSD protocol. Right. So you, you were approaching it as if with the assumption that your clinical depression was due to trauma from the relationships ending exactly yeah. and were you alone did you have someone guiding you or monitoring or i was alone i i called the friend that at the time that you met elisa at the time she was living in barcelona and i said hey just so you know i'm doing this is i don't think it's going to be dangerous but i'm going to call you later just to let you know that i'm okay and she freaked out and called um, a really good friend of mine that I was in a relationship with at the time. One of those people that was supporting me and loving me, but also 
keeping a certain distance. Right. And she showed up freaking out, telling me, what have you done? And I was still under the effects and I was going through all my memories and my pictures. And I said, I'm okay. <laughs> she showed up in the middle of your experience. In the middle of the night. Oh. No, but right at the end. Oh, okay. And I said, okay. I'm okay. I had to do this because the alternative was much worse. Yeah. Had you taken MDMA in the past before that? I had taken it um, once with this uh, woman that I was with. Mm. And that was the first time that I had taken a psychedelic drug. Well, MDMA is not right. exactly psychedelic, but it was an pathogen and it opened up a door for me because I I always had always wanted to control my emotions. My emotions were something to be rationalized and put into little right. boxes to make them manageable. Mm. And that was the first time that I said, okay, I can let go. Mm. And I let go, and what happened is then a couple of weeks I was madly in love with her when she was already on the way out. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow, so now you've taken it a second time and you're immersing yourself in, in a lot of the pain of that relationship and you're in this state of consciousness that you... Yep that brings you back to the moment when you were starting to fall in love and yeah. all the pain from go. from that loss right yeah but you are in a state as the ptsd experiment has demonstrated you're in a state where um that pain is not is something you you can't observe it's not going to kill you right right wow so what was your conclusion from that experience? Was it a one-time thing or did you... It was a one-time thing. It was yeah. a one-time thing. And I kept on working with it. I changed to this new therapist. And after a few months, I was still trying to get out of that state. I didn't want to kill myself anymore. And that was that was a huge step forward. But I was still struggling. And how did you feel that? Like when you say, I didn't want to kill myself, how does that feel different? Is it that you're in less pain so you don't feel the need to end it? I, I've researched it. I've lived it. And, but I, I have also researched it. And I think that suicide is just a way of dealing with unbearable pain. And to the brain, psychological pain is exactly the same as physical pain. Right. So people who are um, subject to torture want to die. Yeah. And you end up feeling the same mm. with psychological pain. And the MDMA reduced the pain to the point where you didn't absolutely, feel that need. Absolutely. The theory behind it, and I'm sure you've read about it, is that while you are in that state, your brain creates new connections to those experiences that are, the, the painful experience is still there, but you have this other connections to that experience that are more manageable right. and are filled with, because you're in a state of heightened empathy, you can look at those experiences with compassion, with um, sympathy. Yeah with empathy toward yourself as well and the other person as well yeah yeah 
So you felt at least a lessening of the of, of the, the pain. pain. Yeah. But and you that, still were feeling kind of stuck, you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I went to my therapist and told her, uh, there's this paper and this experiment with uh, psilocybin. So and she looked at me and she said, and she said you're going to do it anyway, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I would like to do it with you. Basically, I want to go under this drug while we are in a therapy session together. And she looked at me and said, you know, um, you're not the first person to come high to my practice, but you're the first one warning me in advance. Mm. And, and we did it. And the next week we saw each other again. She told me, look, in, I'm, I was looking at my notes. In a week, you've made progress equivalent to six months of therapy. Mm. And that was the beginning of um, my healing, mm. basically. So the MDMA experience sort of showed you the potential to sort of rewire connections. I mean, using this as a partly as a metaphor, of course, although yeah. there is some sort of factual neurobiological basis for it. And then the, the psilocybin you felt was the the tool you wanted to use to make further progress in that way? It, it ended up being that. Yeah. It ended up being the tool that I used. Right. Also, I discovered ayahuasca shortly after, and there was another experience that brought me along this path. And... Um, I recognized then after all those experiences that I had this um, part of myself that was underdeveloped. The emotional part had been underdeveloped for many years and I was using my rational mind to take care of things. Right. And that was a, a huge mismatch. Right. And I could feel that mismatch in myself. I, I don't feel feel okay but I can't put my finger on it right. and from that moment on I was sick I knew exactly what, what the whole thing was about mm. interesting yeah that's such a turning point isn't it and it, it's like even if you look at it in a physiological sense right like if you you know uh, I was talking to a friend recently who, who said I forget what it was he had an accident and and he he finally found uh, a healer who recognized what the problem was. And it was a vertebrae that was out of place at the base of his cranium. The, the, the very specific thing. And, and this healer said, I can help you, but you're going to be in a lot of pain for about six months because your body has to totally rearrange, rearrange right? It's compensated already for this deficit and now it's going to have to rearrange everything um it's interesting how it can be sudden and gradual at the same time oh yeah right? oh yeah i heard this metaphor about psychedelic drugs because you know with this psychedelic renaissance everyone everybody's talking about it everybody's using them yeah but the most accurate uh comparison i've heard was this guy who said that they are a trampoline you're in a deep hole and you use a trampoline to look around what's outside. But you're not, you're, you go back to the hole. Right. You have to climb out. You have to climb out, but you have to basically build a stair. Right. <laughs> you need a stair, not a but trampoline to climb, climb out. But at least you see there's a way out. But at least you see there's 
other stuff out there yeah. that you want to see, that you want to live in that world. Right. And is that how it felt to you that you you could see the light? And oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm really jealous of you because you had the same experience years before I did. So I wish I I, I only wish that I had had that experience earlier in my life. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's something that we are missing as a culture, as a species. The opportunity to go through this rite of passage when where we are forced to get outside of ourselves, be it by, via drugs or extreme experiences or, or exposure, being alone in the world, whatever it is, yeah. climbing a mountain, going down a cave, whatever it is that brings you outside of yourself and allows you to see who you are. And also to see how it doesn't matter that much. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's like to see who you really are. You also need to see how little it really matters. I think I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. it's a that's a that you're not such a big deal. Right. Right. <laughs> and the end of your life is just the end of a life, and many other lives have come and gone, and like you don't need to take everything so seriously. And yeah. Yeah, and the only thing that matters is really the other lives that you've touched right. and how you've helped all the people go right. along their own way. Yeah. And everything is small and unimportant and transcendent. Um, I'm not religious. I, I think that that shows. But I, I do believe that we can transcend in other lives, the lives of all the people Right. And the lives of the other living organisms in this planet that we are about to fuck and that up forever. is reincarnation, <laughs> right? I mean, light ripples and moves through us like vibrations. It yeah. does. Yeah, I agree. I'm. I listen to um, Aubrey Marcus's podcast, your friend Aubrey Marcus, and he is such an an interesting guy. But he feels the need to transcend with these entities, these deities, this idea that there's something out there bigger than you. I don't really feel that need. I think that life is so vast and unfathomable and complex and wonderful that if you need to make up some other entities to justify your existence in this universe... You're missing out on a lot of things that are right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel about these, like people who are who want to go to Mars, you know, like Elon Musk, or or people who are working very hard to try to, you know, conquer death. You know, we're going to create eternal life somehow. These Silicon Valley guys, I feel like they're missing the point. Oh yeah, <laughs> the point is not to bring life to Mars. The point is to learn to appreciate life here you know it's there's so much we don't understand we haven't begun to understand what's going on in the oceans you know and and here we are destroying them and not to mention our own brains our own brains or the brain of a dog i mean you know like the people are still debating whether dogs have consciousness like have you ever been around a dog <laughs> of course it's conscious you know it's ridiculous yeah well, so how are you feeling now? You're, do you feel you've turned that corner and, and it's a, a different story now? I did, and it was a test by fire because when COVID hit, um, I had um, eight 
projects that were starting at the time. I had just written a book. I had just started my own podcast. I had just um, acquired the same magazine I was a contributor to. Mm. And I had all my... Um, Guns in a row, is that how you say it? I don't know. I had all my, all my ducks, ducks, in, all ducks my, in a row. <laughs> from the other side, I had all my ducks in a row. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was ready to fire. Yeah. And and then COVID hit. Yeah. And every single one of those things went belly up. <laughs> but funny thing is that I was ready. Mm. That I've, I, I was going through it, it was a really hard time I was struggling but I was ready I was ready to see it as part of my life right. and see it as a learning opportunity as well this all sounds so wishy-washy and so new agey but it really is I mean when you have something bad happen to you yeah it sucks it's a bad thing but you have to continue with your life. You have to keep on living and use that as part of your, a part of the energy that you carry with you. Right. And what's the value now looking back, you know, on the experience that almost ended your life or the experiences, what is the value from that that you carry forward now? I think the most important part is that that we talked earlier that I am not so important. Mm. I'm not such a big deal. And the best thing I can do is bring some to give back some of the good things that I have to other people, to my immediate environment, to the other humans that I can reach, that I can touch. Mm. Have you learned things about helping other people who are suffering? For example, earlier you said like they, your friends had this instinctive knowledge of what the right distance, what the right boundaries were to help oh, yeah. you without being pulled into it. Do you sort of, did you learn, like, are you better at helping other people now than you oh, were before? Definitely. I mean, <laughs> I I don't even know how people could stand me back in the day because, like I said, I was trying to rationalize everything and that wasn't helping them. Right. And I can only appreciate how much love they had for me. <laughs> they put up with your bullshit. <laughs> they put up with my bullshit. <laughs> yeah. That's the definition of love, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, by now I've been uh, for six years and there's long-distance relationship with um, uh, a girl who lives in the States who's a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. Like I told you, that grants you the superpower th uh, that you're able to fly for almost nothing anywhere in the world. But I mostly use that superpower to go see her right. and spend time with her. And during COVID, for two years, we could, all, we could only see each other for a couple of weeks, really. Right. Because the borders were closed. Right. She couldn't fly to Spain. I couldn't fly to the States. And that was in a long-distance relationship that was already under a lot of pressure from being in a long-distance relationship and an open relationship at that. So mm. there were a lot of things to manage. And in a way, she wasn't ready for that. It was too much, too much to ask from anyone to put up with that. Yeah. 
And fortunately, I was in a better place. And I think that I was able to help her and help myself in the process. Mm. And, um, well, the, the thing is that we are still in a relationship. And I think we, that we are in a better, much better place than we were before because of going through all that. Right. Because of being able to help each other. Right. And because of me being able to help her. And have you have you solved the problem that you identified earlier, that sense that if the support is with the external support is withdrawn, you still have you have internal support now? Oh yeah. So you're so if this relationship doesn't pan out, whatever you'll be okay? There was a moment in the middle of a relationship that I didn't have the energy to carry on because she was blaming me. Mm. I I, I love her very much, but I understand that in the place that where she was, she was she felt so powerless. Right. And it's the government who's <laughs> telling you you can't yeah. cross that border. Right. You can't see. We were looking a lot of different things. There was this um, European uh, regulation that if you could provide proof that you are in a relationship, even if you're not married, then they could fly. They, the border, you could cross the border to Europe, to any European country. And we went through all the process so she could come to Madrid and stay with me for, for a few weeks. But um, it was, it felt out of our hands. It felt, we felt powerless. And at the time, at some, we had some arguments and she was blaming me and I was like, okay, I understand that you're upset, but I'm not making the rules. <laughs> it's the government that doesn't let us see each other. Yeah. But instead of telling her you're not making sense, I was in a place where I could calm down and listen. And, okay, how does that feel? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because ultimately it's about how it feels, not whether it makes sense or not. Exactly. Yeah. It's a different language. Yeah. It's a different part of your brain. You're a different animal. I was writing recently about how uh, are we selfish by nature or are we cooperative by nature? And the thing is that we seem to be wired for cooperation and sharing. But when we feel threatened, when we feel our very existence uh, on the line, then we become predators and we try to remove everything that stands in our way, <laughs> including all the people. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah, I always say when people ask me that kind of question, I say, that's like asking the nature of H2O. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all about context, right? Yeah. Dario Pescador. Pescador is fisherman, right? It is. Are you from a family of fishermen? No. Also, long story, um, Names of trades in Spain come from convert Jews. Uh, Jews were expelled from yeah. the uh, the Iberian Peninsula in the 16th century. A lot of them remained and pretend to be uh, Christian. Uh -huh. so and they, they took the up they took Christian names, and a lot of them were trade names of trades. Interesting, <laughs> like blacksmith or right. uh, whatever it is. Huh. So, like someone with the surname Gonzalez. That's probably uh, not. Probably not. But Herrero, Pescador, all uh, those names of, of trades are. And that was acceptable. You become a Christian, you take one of these names, everyone knows your family was Jewish, but we're going to just 
Yeah, there are a lot of stories it. about that. Do you know why most meals in Spain start with a little bit of cold cuts of ham or sausages? Yeah. You invited people over, you invited people over, and the first thing that you wanted to know is if they were really converted to Christianity, so you offer them some pork. <laughs> no shit, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, we are enjoying the tradition now, although that's... Yeah, Spanish ham is fantastic. Five centuries in the past. I never but. thought of it as like a way to see, you know, the secret Jews in the room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right, Dario Pescador, uh, you're on Instagram, right? If anyone wants to say hello, are you open to that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I'm at Dario Pes, Dario P-E-S. P-E-S. And, yeah, I... My Instagram is mostly about personal stuff, but I also post other things occasionally. And I'm working on content in English in the in the next few months. So, but this has felt great, Chris, because uh, I don't really have anything to pitch. And this, <laughs> <laughs> and this is a conversation among friends. And yeah. it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, for me too. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Heading for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal It doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest Shut it up, but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is heading for a headstone to the ground.